The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. Come, Holy Ghost, fill the hearts of thy faithful, and kindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy Spirit, and they shall be created, and thou shalt renew the face of the earth. Let us pray, O God, who didst instruct the hearts of thy faithful by the light of the Holy Ghost, grant us by that same Spirit to be truly wise, and ever to rejoice in its consolation. Through Christ our Lord, Amen. Hello and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm Thomas Nagley. I'm here with Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest of the Society of St. Pius V. And he also serves as the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you this evening? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. And you? Just the same, Father. It's good, good to see you, yes, as always. Yes, you too. Uh, Father, as usual, any prayer requests tonight before we get into our topics? Well, there are always many such prayer requests, as you know. Of course, there are many who are suffering right now. Uh, please remember... Um, Monsignor Handworker, please, uh, and uh, his cousins also, Nancy and Lori, who are recovering from accidents they had. And also, uh, please remember Pat Tutti and uh, remember uh, Mary Beth. Mary Beth was just involved in an accident, uh, a road accident, which left her with many broken bones, and she's still suffering quite a bit. Please keep her in your prayers. Please also keep uh, Cheryl Johnson in your prayers. And uh, of course, Paul Riley and his family, please pray very, uh, very much for them. Um, and um, Father Starbuck and Father Campbell down in Texas, right? Father Campbell is uh, up in years. And uh, I understand that he, um, well, I was told that he was not able to offer public mass now. <clears throat> um, so please uh, keep him in his prayers. I, I know there are a lot of uh, good people there who would depend on him. and. Uh, He's valiantly carried on for many years here. So uh, hopefully, uh, let's see what God provides there. But in any case, um, and again, there, there are always so many, many more. Um, you know, names just keep coming to mind. Jim Sank, you know, and uh, uh, Dr. David Hofrichter and so many others. I could really go on for the next hour just naming names. But God knows who they are. That's the important thing. And if you pray for them, our Lord will... Um, you know, answer your prayers, you'll have mercy on them, and you too, for your charity. So please, and always keep our country in your prayers. Our countries and, uh, and the whole world, heaven knows, uh, need to appeal to God. The Father, um, as, our lady, as Our Lady called upon us to uh, pray and do penance, as you say, pray the rosary, offer sacrifices for sinners, and um, be faithful to our duties of life, state and life. Thank you, Father. Uh, we uh, had several topics for tonight, Father. Uh, some of our viewers, though, wanted to know if you could uh, comment on some of the current happenings in the Novus Ordo Church, um, in particular some of the uh, controversy that's um, swirling right now regarding uh, the Novus Ordo Bishop Schneider and uh, Bishop Vigano. Could you comment on that uh, controversy, Father? Yes, well, Archbishop Vigano has been stronger and stronger in his statements, you know, and just recently... 
he came out with a video statement that he expected to be read, I guess, or hoped to be read at the Catholic Identity Conference in Pittsburgh uh, last month, I guess, sometime. <clears throat> it was not read there, but um, Archbishop Vigano's address called uh, Vitium Consensus it questioned Francis' consent um, about you know, being elected or accepting the position of the Supreme Pontiff, of, of, of the, the papacy, essentially. And um, Archbishop Vigano made, made a, a very strong case, I believe, uh, that uh, Francis never became Pope um, because he, his intentions in taking uh, that power were to destroy the church, not to build up the church, okay? Now, as you know, Tom, I mean, uh, some time ago, years ago, I mentioned the question of uh, whether Francis could <clears throat> become the Pope in any case, because when a man is, is, is voted, even by legitimate cardinals, when he's voted the Pope, <clears throat> and he receives the necessary majority, he doesn't become the Pope until he formally accepts the office. And Francis, as I said, doesn't even believe in the office of the papacy. Uh, what he believes about the papacy is a complete myth and totally contrary to Catholic belief. So the question in my mind is, how could one formally accept the office that he doesn't even believe in which he actually he believes quite the contrary, um, the exact opposite of the truth of what the papacy really is, and uh, no one but no one has uh, even deigned to address that question until Archbishop Vigano now raised the question of Francis's consent. But Archbishop Vigano's uh, slant is different from mine, of course, because he says that Francis had a well, I guess it's not entirely different because he does raise the question that Francis had a contrary intention. Okay, I guess you can interpret it that way. That he uh, accepted the election because he wanted to use it to attack the church. Basically what Archbishop Vigano said. And I agree. I agree with Archbishop Vigano. Um, this is a serious question. In fact, I, I think it is um, in a question that answers itself. I think Francis has already answered the question when he wrote on the 50th anniversary of, of uh, Paul VI creating the Synod of Bishops, when Francis actually comes out and explains what the role of the Pope is. And it is the role of the modernist Pope, of a modernist church. Right? He explains it all there. And clearly what Francis outlines as the, the nature of the papacy and the role of the Pope is is the teaching of the modernists, it is not the Catholic papacy. So right then and there, I mean, it should have been very clear that Francis did not accept the papacy as the Catholic Church understands the papacy to really be, as it was instituted by Christ. <clears throat> so, um, you know, Bishop Schneider refers over and over again to the peaceful and uh, universal acceptance, you know, that yeah. the Catholic people accepted Francis, we just have to go with that. And there are others uh, who, you know, appeal to that over and over again, uh, as though that's proof positive, and there are no questions um, that are not settled. All the questions are settled by that fact, they said, that the Catholic people and the clergy all accepted Francis. 
as the Supreme Pontiff. And um, I think they're wrong. I mean, they're wrong in their interpretation. I think Archbishop Vigano is right in that there was not universal and peaceful acceptance. And the fact is that when a man ex accepts or appears to accept, and he has a track record going back years, and here he sets a new track record going forward and tells you, okay, this is what I mean by the papacy. And he told us that. And you see it's not the papacy as the Catholic Church understands it. That answers the question right there. And this question was answered 10 years ago by Francis, right from the start. He, he answered the question that this is the papacy as far as I'm concerned, and this is the pope I intend to be. And it's straight, it's just absolute sheer modernism, right on the pages of, of uh, the condemnation of the errors of the modernists by Pope St. Pius X in 1907. So again, I mean, I, I think Francis, if anybody was paying attention, so I think Francis answered the question that he didn't give consent ever to be a Catholic Pope, period. And I think people should go back and revisit that document. As soon as I read it 10 years ago, I, you know, I thought this, this man can't be a Pope. He doesn't even believe in the papacy. Look what he says the papacy is. It's, uh, it's a rejection of the Catholic teaching of the papacy. It's a total embrace of the modernist idea of the, the, he's the he's, he is the supreme pontiff of modernism. He is the Pope of modernism. That's basically what he's telling you. And that's not Catholicism. Uh, so uh, again, I mean, if you, if you don't have anybody else to appeal to, appeal to Francis. Uh, hear what he's saying. Pay attention to what he's saying. Listen to what he's saying. Take it seriously. He certainly does. And he rejects the papacy, the very concept of the papacy. Um, I think Archbishop Vigano is on the right track here. Now, again, I'm not saying that I agree with everything he says. I don't know everything he says. You know, I haven't read everything he's put out. And uh, I understand that he's connected with Opus Dei, which does um, uh, raise some red flags with me, right? Um, and uh, that may well be so, because we have some sources that, uh, you know, are, are students of that subject, right? But nonetheless, I think in terms of what he's saying here, and he's the lone voice saying it that I, that I know of, and nobody but nobody is actually responding to what he's actually saying. Um, they're, they're, they're getting what he's saying, turning it into a straw man argument, and then knocking it down. Um, but I do think he's on the right track here, definitely. So anyway, I think that's something that we should keep an eye on, mm. pay attention to, and try to uh, almost compel people to face the issue, don't avoid it, don't uh, twist it to, to avoid it, and um, uh, answer the question. You know, this is a straightforward question, and it deserves a straightforward answer, and I don't see anybody giving that straightforward answer. Mm -hmm. So, And Father, in this um, discussion of Francis, you've recently referred to him as a, as a kind of a, a neo-pagan. Mm -hmm. um, could, you, could you expand upon that a little bit more? Well, if you, if you look at the history of Francis up until this point, you see more and more people, uh, laymen and clergy, even in the New Order, are <clears throat> labeling Francis a non-Catholic. They're saying he's, he's not Catholic, he doesn't have the Catholic faith, he's speaking against the Catholic faith, um, there are those even who are willing to venture the fact that he is a modernist, right? But I don't know of anybody who's actually said, well, okay, he's not a Catholic, neither in his belief 
nor in his religious practice. So what is he? I mean, what is his religion? Now, some would answer, well, he's a modernist. But, you know, modernism is a belief system. If you read the encyclical of St. Pius X, condemning the errors of modernism, dated September 8, 1907, you see St. Pius X begins his analysis of modernism by saying it is based on false philosophy. So he seems to indicate that modernism is more of a philosophy, false philosophy, than an actual religion. It's like a false religion or false philosophy that actually begets a kind of false religion, okay? So, I mean, people can argue the point, well, does modernism actually constitute a, a, a religion? I would argue modernism constitutes like a fountainhead a fountainhead, I'm sorry, a fountainhead from which you could derive many, many different religions, okay? But they all have certain basic principles in common. Sort of like Cartesian philosophy, you know. Descartes, back in the 1600s, a mathematician, uh, spawns these ideas, cogite ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. He just proved his own existence to himself. And... Uh, <clears throat> The, the Cartesian ideas have spawned multiple, multiple different philosophies. All of them based on, they're all fathered by Cartesianism. So there are multiple, multiple different religions fathered by modernism and the fundamental principles of modernism. One of those false religions that coincides perfectly with modernism is neo-paganism. Neo-paganism might be the purest example of modernism. And I believe that Francis really is a neo-pagan in his belief. And if you examine everything he's written, and everything he said about Mother Earth and the Earth Goddess and Pachamama, all the things he's done, even recently having the thousands of children following him and leading the, the, the chant, uh, nature is our future, nature is our future, all of that, the indigenous people religion, experiencing Mother Earth in contact with, you know, the rivers and the forests, and now they're, they, they have personalities, right? They're actually like animus, you know, because they have spirits in them and so on. All of that points to neo-paganism. I think Francis is absolutely a neo-pagan. That's not to say he's not a modernist, because as I say, that's a certain... Uh, direction that neo-modernism points out. Uh, you see, if, if, you, if you take the fundamental modernist idea that you, you find God where you experience God, and then the neo-pagans say, well, we find God where we experience him in nature. And that's our indigenous religion, which is what Francis is all about. Well, that's the experience of God that Francis has. That's the experience of God that Francis uh, actually promotes. Uh, it just actually, you might say, uh, he's the, the prophet of that, the prophet of neo-paganism. Experience God, find him in nature. Allah, Palachamama, indigenous religions, call the spirits from the four winds, you know, by beating the drum and smoking the pipe and all that, like in Canada, right, took part in the ceremony there. This is the example that he sets. 
I believe that really is his religion. That's his faith, I should say. And now he's cultivating his religion. Okay, he's coming up with these indigenous rites to express this experience of God. Modernism is the fountainhead of this, and the new order that came out of Vatican II is the religion of modernism. But I think as modernism is now focusing more and more through Francis and through the Vatican, as neo-paganism, it's kind of manifesting itself as neo-paganism, so the religion, the Novus Ordo, is going to be turning more and more to neo-paganism in its practice. And it's going to be flooded with these neo-pagan practices. In a sense, it already is. Uh, now, as a very wise man just pointed out, after we had a little discussion on this subject, he said, well, remember what uh, Ettore Gotitereschi said <coughs> years ago. Remember, remember, Tedeschi was the, the compatriot and uh, of uh, Archbishop Vigano. When Archbishop Vigano was il gubernatore, I think it was, uh, exactly what the title was, that he had, that he was assigned to oversee the Vatican um, material affairs and financial affairs and so on, because of all the corruption, he was supposed to try to help clean that out. And Archbishop Vigano was a good choice because he's a man who is intrepid, and once he's onto it, he's not going to, uh, you know, give up. And so, unfortunately, or fortunately, he was uncovering too much, right? And working with him in uncovering this was the president of the Vatican Bank. And the director of the Vatican Bank was none other than Ettore Gotitineski, the financier. He's a financial man, economics and so on. So um, both of them were sacked at the same time. <clears throat> Vigano was sacked and Tedeschi was sacked at the same time. Tedeschi was kind of... Um, um, they, they had to somehow undermine his reputation uh, because of what he knew. I mean, they had to kind of discredit him. And Vigano, they got him out of the Vatican and they sent him over to the United States of America, kind of putting him on ice as the uh, Apostolic Nuncio. Remember that? For five years or so here in America. And they, they realized the blunder that they had made because when he came over here, he became privy to all of the uh, abuse of the seminarians and by the priests and in the seminaries and so on and, and the children and in the, in the, in the pastors, the parishes. And... Archbishop Vigano was not going to be silent about that. He became aware of Theodore McCarrick, the cardinal, right, who was actually sort of like the, the godless father of all of this, all of this impure abuse. And uh, he reported, he took a, a couple of boxes, I understand, of, of dossiers of testimony to Francis and handed it to him about McCarrick, which later on Francis denied he ever saw, he knew nothing about it, that's when Vigano exposed him as lying, that he knew exactly the, that what was happening with McCarrick and hundreds of others in, 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 in America, and Francis was covering it up. That's when Vigano had to go into hiding, right, where he still is. <clears throat> but Ettore uh, Gotti Tedeschi was not silent either, even though they had tried to discredit him, again, because he knew too much. He came out and he made a statement that was very, very significant. We talked about it earlier, years ago. 
Tedeschi said they're actually purveying a new religion in the Vatican. He said the new religion in the Vatican and the new religion coming out of the Vatican, he called uh, environmental Gnosticism. Remember that? Environmental Gnosticism. And I'm sure most people, when they hear this, they, their eyes kind of <laughs> go blank. And they think, what is that? That's a religion, environmental Gnosticism, and that's exactly right. I don't think anybody could have put it more clearly. I mean, I, I, you know, I give a tip of the bread to Ettore Tedeschi because he named it perfectly. He pegged it. <clears throat> and that's exactly what neo-paganism is. So when I, when I uh, was saying that Francis is a neo-pagan in his belief, I, I mean, this, this gentleman pointed out, well, remember what Tedeschi said, environmental Gnosticism. And I thought, that's exactly it, isn't it? That's what corresponds perfectly to Francis's new religion. Uh, in his, his new religion of neo-paganism. Neo Look it up. See. Read the characteristics, the, the quote-unquote doctrines, although Francis is allergic to the word doctrine. Read the, the belief system of the neo-pagan concept of God that they experience in nature and how they experience it. And you'll find what Francis has been pushing and pushing and pushing all these years and continues to push in his uh, climate change uh, crusade, anti-crusade, and all the rest. It's all that. It's, it is environmental Gnosticism. It is, it is neo-paganism. And that's why you're going to find more and more of this manifesting itself in the Novus Ordo. You know, the, the whole thing with the Synod, I mean, everything is, falls into place with this. Mo modernism um, as, a, as the fountainhead of these ideas and turning everything back to the, the paganistic idea of experiencing God. By the way, if the modernists hold that uh, God is to be experienced, but you have to distinguish between the authentic experience and the non-authentic experience. And you have to cancel the non-authentic experience. For example, you have indigenous people in the, in the wilds, in the Amazon, and they're living um, off, the, the, let's say, the river, and they're experiencing God in the forest. They're experiencing God in the rivers and so on. They're communicating with the gods of these things. That's authentic for Francis. The traditional mass, traditional sacraments, traditional faith and religion, traditional catechism, that's not an authentic experience. Francis has said so. The traditional mass is not an authentic uh, reflection or, or statement or does not correspond to the modern understanding. He said it's no longer applicable, right? The Novus Ordo Mass is. That's authentic. The old traditional Mass, that's no longer authentic. It has to be canceled. So actually, ours is the only religion, our Catholic faith, and the religion that practices that traditional Catholic faith is really the only religion that is not an authentic experience of who God is now. Basically, anything else goes. Right? Francis is not going to speak against the is Islam of Hamas. He's not going to talk against it. He's already told the imam, right, that God wills all religions. 
And as far as the imam is concerned, that's Allah, right? <laughs> and, uh, and Francis might say, yeah, Allah, that's what I mean. <laughs> um, this, this is your experience of God, and uh, it's perfectly authentic. But not yours, Tom, because you're a traditional Catholic. That has to be canceled. It's the one thing that has to be canceled. What does it tell you? What does it tell you about him? So in any case, and, and <clears throat> you know, again, when they set this up, and I mentioned the, uh, the other day, taking the surveys, the surveys are a very part, part of that, because that's how they find out what people are experiencing, of who God is. They make surveys and they submit them to the Vatican. And so the Vatican, they can process all this and say, okay, let's read the surveys and see what people are experiencing about God. Well, notice they've already, already uh, cooked the books on that, in the sense that, I mean, very few traditional Catholics are going to play into that. Very few traditional Catholics are going to be filling out these surveys because they don't believe that faith is a matter of taking surveys and seeing what people think. You know, so traditional Catholics aren't going to do that. Who are going to be filling out these surveys? People who believe with the process. But it's not a Catholic process to begin with. So already it's already predetermined what's going to come in on those surveys. And if any survey comes in that's more traditional, it, it, that's not authentic. It's not an authentic uh, experience of who God is, so it has to go into the trash immediately. And ultimately, it's going to come down to Francis to decide <clears throat> what's an authentic experience of God and what's not. Well, he's already told you the authentic experience of God is Pachamama. It's uh, the trees and the, forest and, the, and the Amazon River. I mean, this is the authentic experience of God. It's God in nature, and it's in the indigenous religions that he's willing to participate in. That's where he finds God. He's a neo-pagan. So, um, anyway, um, it's uh, something that people just have to have to face the reality of it. Brother, mm. I could see a lot of Novosoto Catholics who might uh, might agree with your assessment, your critique of, of Francis, but. Um, I could see them very, very quickly saying, "Well, you know, this this is just Francis. He's just a bad pope. Um, but his papacy is, his evil papacy is going to pass, and then we're going to have a good pope. So what we need to do is just, just hold fast, just stay, stay in the Novus Ordo Church, and kind of tolerate, put up with Francis, and uh, just kind of wait it out, and then we're going to have a, a maybe, maybe, hopefully, have a good pope." After so him. all, all of these cardinals are going to be voting for the next pope. All of these cardinals are appointed by Francis. I mean, the majority of them, I think, at least half of them now are appointed by Francis, right? Yeah. And yes, he's talking about uh, reworking the, the system, the election system again, uh, to make it virtually impossible for anybody with a Catholic faith to be elected, <coughs> even if these cardinals would, by some stroke of grace, try to elect a Catholic pope or someone with a Catholic faith. Uh, Francis is already monkeying with the process, as they did to get to get uh, the modernists in power in the first place. Uh, they, they changed the system of election. Talk about election corruption, right? And, uh, I mean, it started, and it was happening in the Vatican back in the 60s um, and 70s as to control the process so you, you, would only, you could only get modernists. And it was increasingly, you know, modernists. Who would, who would be, um, and if you got somebody in there who had a scintilla of the Catholic faith lift, they'd find a way to get rid of him. They'd get him out of there and move on, as they did with Francis. So, um, you know, Francis is already preparing uh, the way for some radical who will make him look like, uh, I won't say St. Thomas Aquinas, but 
at least it, it'll it'll make Francis look at least Christian in comparison, and that's going to be quite a trick because Francis doesn't show any real. I mean, he's already called for a theology that will not have the face of Christ, right? He's already called for that in the church. So, what does that tell you? What should it tell them? Um, <clears throat> so, no, that's that's. You know what it reminds me of, Tom. It reminds me of those here in America who are falling into a trap, another trap. I mean, you know, I don't, I don't want this to sound like I'm saying, well, we told you so. But, I mean, when Francis put out the statement uh, about the Synod back 10 years ago, and the Synodal Church that he was going to create, we did say, look, what he says, the papacy is. It's not the papacy. He couldn't be the pope. He doesn't even believe in the papacy. How could he accept the papacy? And when the so-called, uh, what should I call it, um, the, the protest uh, took place on uh, the 6th of January, remember that? 2020, right? And uh, it was called this terrible word, which you're not allowed to pronounce anymore, unless you, you're going to be canceled. <coughs> we said, look, this was a put-up job. This was an inside job entirely. There's a reason why a certain Nancy would not allow, you know, there to be uh, actual National Guard presence there. Um, this had to be allowed so that they could provoke a, a crisis that they would use. I mean, this is what the leftists do. They wanted to provoke a crisis. We said this, that this was, a, this was all an accident set up, a train wreck set up in advance by the leftist Democrats in power in Washington to create an issue. First of all, they had to stop the Congress, actually it was the joint session of Congress, from deciding the election because the congressmen and senators, enough of them had said they were going to protest it on the floor and challenge the election. And they had to find a way to shut that down. The leftists did, and this is how they shut it down by just fomenting this crisis, right? And uh, ever since they've been milking it to, to persecute people who oppose them, okay? And they've got people in jail now who are perfectly innocent of any crime, of any wrongdoing. And this is the crime. This is the real crime. The jailing and imprisoning of people who are not guilty of anything at all. Rather, they're, they're the ones who are using this to not only cover up what they've done, but they're using it, again, to consolidate their power. Um, I think our own people are falling into this. Again, the same trap that, oh, just wait, in 2024, we're going to storm, you know, we conservatives, or we're going to storm the ballot boxes, we're going we're to just overwhelm them, and we're going to have the red tide again, and uh, Trump is going to get in, and he's going to make everything right. Just you wait. Just you know. And I think they're using that to keep everybody quiet and thinking, oh, this is our big hope now. This is our big hope right now. And all they're doing is, is having people focus on that, uh, focus on this Trump and DeSantis and Haley and Nikki Haley and all the rest. Thinking, oh, this is where the battle is. This is where our concern should be. We just have to make sure we get the right person up there to elect in the 2024, I think they, the decision's already been made. 
I think the box, the ballot boxes, the, the ballots have already been counted for 2024, I believe. Um, that they've got it in their power, and that's why they, they, they're not that concerned about it, really. But they just want to keep everybody quiet and give this, this hope that the, the election 2024 is going to be the answer, and uh, we're, that's going to make everything go away. Uh, we're going to get control, we're going to get, drain the swamp finally, and so on and so forth, and I think it's an absolute, um, well, you know, uh, who is it? Mark, Marx said that religion is the opiate of the people. I think this is the opiate of the conservatives that they're using. Uh, keeps the conservatives thinking, oh, oh, we can still do this. We can still carry this out. I think the 2024 election, they, they haven't done anything to fix the election problem to begin with, really. So what, what madness is it to think that we're going to go through a 2024 election and all is going to turn out right? And the boat is suddenly going to flip right side up again. I, I, I think we need to actually face reality for what it is and... Uh, and stop uh, allowing them to be, you know, it reminds me of, reminds me of the, 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 the hypnotist waving the watch. In fact, you say, now focus on the watch. To hear my voice, listen to my voice. Just, you're getting sleepy. <laughs> this is what I see happening over and over again with the conservatives. And they're consist consistently, con continuously getting, getting mesmerized, literally, and getting hypnotized by this. And... Um, they just had the release because of the new uh, Speaker of the House. Uh, they had the release of 40,000 hours at least, right, of, of video, audio video recordings about the whole so-called, whatever you want to call it, can't name the word, of course. And people are actually seeing what we pointed out back then about these, what the videos they were showing, and it was all theater. But now they're showing that the, the police actually attacked the people, unprovoked, with weapons. They were actually firing flash grenades into the crowds of people. And people were being seriously injured by these things. I think they were trying to provoke them to do, to do something radical so that they could use this. And I think ever since then, they've been trying to do that. I think they've been trying to provoke conservatives, so-called, into just doing something uh, that would entitle them to impose martial law. And yet the conservatives haven't been doing anything, really. So they've actually made things up. I mean, raids on people's homes who did nothing but protest abortion, things like that. They're looking for something, anything, to try to provoke a reaction that will justify them uh, coming down with the, you know, the, the, the full force of whatever they have, you know, even getting the United States military. Uh, milita well, that's martial law, isn't it, really? So, I mean, I think we have to face reality for what it is, what's been going on here. I mean, we've been right consistently throughout this whole time. Um, and uh, I just hope people actually wake up to what is actually going on and, uh, and not be mesmerized by the leftists and um, actually come together and figure out some realistic, some realistic plan. The realistic plan, I think, uh, goes with Our Lady of Fatima and what Our Lady told us. That's where it has to start, right? Repentance and prayer and reform and all the rest. That's where it has to start. But beyond that, I just don't see any, any real serious talk about what can we do to address this, right? Um, so 
anyway, uh, I guess people would rather latch onto false hopes offered by leftists uh, and their uh, fake media <coughs> just to control uh, the opposition rather than the real hope that heaven itself is sending. Mm -hmm. There's some good people out there, though. There are some good people out there who see clearly what's going on. If they could just find their way to sit down at the same table and have some serious discussions, I think they could actually formulate some very, a very good plan uh, that would be a, a very realistic plan to deal with a very realistic problem, a very real problem. Yeah. Okay. But anyway, um, um, it's, it's, there's no people are kind of expecting the cavalry to arrive in 2024. <clears throat> and the fact is, <clears throat> when the cavalry arrives, it's going to be a bunch of, uh, of well, jackasses in the sense of donkeys uh, ridden by Democrats. I'm afraid that that's going to be the cavalry again. Um, <clears throat> so uh, it's not going to be a herd of elephants. <laughs> I don't believe anyway. And we see when the elephants do arrive that many of them are rhinos, right? Yeah. So they're actually um, wolves in sheep's clothing. Um, so anyway, again, the answer is a spiritual answer. It has to start with that. Uh, is that the whole answer? No, it can't end there. That has to be the beginning. That has to be the principle from which we, 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 we develop whatever plans we make. It has to start with the spiritual, moral questions and foundations. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, Father, we did have some uh, viewer email. You were uh, up Yes, there. yes. Uh, let's try that. Okay. <laughs> we had a couple of good questions. Uh, one of our uh, very faithful viewers uh, wrote in a great, great question when he asked about the meaning and, and significance of our Lord referring to himself as the Son of Man. I says, for example, well, when our Lord said, but that you may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sin. Uh, then said he to, sick man, uh, to the man sick of the palsy, arise, take up thy bed, and go into thy house. Uh, he says, I wonder why our Lord uses this choice of words to refer to himself. Why instead doesn't he say uh, the Son of God or the Son of the Almighty Father, etc.? Something like this would be much more direct in his claim to be the Messiah. Uh, so he asked, Father, does the original language shed any light on what is meant by this choice of words, the Son of Man? Well, yes. I mean, the, the words of the Gospel are very clear. Our Lord referred to himself as the Son of Man, repeatedly. <clears throat> and um, I think if you could look at the commentaries, right, the, the Catholic commentaries on that, and you'd find some very enlightening things. Uh, I think right now, though, perhaps we could just make two points. One is uh, the significance of that title, Son of Man, during our Lord's lifetime, and the significance of that title uh, after the resurrection and the ascension, and in the life of the church. Okay. During our Lord's lifetime, our Lord was intentionally cryptic. He called himself the Son of Man. Uh, if he had called himself the Son of God, uh, from the beginning, he would have immediately been charged with blasphemy. And the showdown that took place after three, three and a half years of teaching would have taken place on day one, right? So he, he couldn't just begin teaching as public, in his public life and say, I am the Son of God, because that would have been it, right? Um, that, it would have been over at that point, right? Remember when our Lord 
began his public life, uh, he actually spent 40 days in the desert. And after those 40 days, who came to him? Satan. Satan. And what, why did Satan come to him? Him. And what was Satan's temptation? If... Fall down and worship me? No. That was number three. Oh. <laughs> right. What was the first thing Satan said to him? I had to turn the stones into bread. Yes, but he, he preceded that, turning the stones into bread by saying, if you are the oh, son of God, mm -hmm. right? If you are the son of God, then turn these stones into bread. That was his question, right? And, but our Lord had not said that. You know, he had not made the point, and he made, didn't make the point uh, advisedly. I mean, there was an intentional reason why he was not making that point. This is at the outset. He hadn't actually been to the wedding feast of Cana yet, as far as I recall. Uh, that would come, and working his first miracle, and he manifested his glory. And his, his disciples believed in him, as we read, after the turning of the water into wine. But Satan uh, knew there was something going on here, which he had not encountered before, um, because of the person of Christ. He had never encountered such a person. Well, it was the divine person of the Son of God. And so he asks, if you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. Did our Lord do it? No. Did he, did he uh, accede to his second temptation? No, nor the third. And, um, but later on, when our Lord worked a miracle or two, uh, devils would come out crying out, you are the Son of God, you are the Son of God, and our Lord would silence them. Right? So by that time, the devils had figured out who this was, right? that this is indeed the Son of God. Okay. But our Lord continued not to refer to himself as the Son of God. In fact, uh, the clearest statement of our Lord's condemnation was, this man must die because he broke our laws, uh, blaspheming by saying he is the Son of God. And remember Pilate's reaction to that. And Pilate was a pagan, he believed in the multiplicity of gods, and so, for all he knew, maybe this was, a, this was a god he was dealing with. His wife even warned him, I have nothing to do with this just man, because I have suffered greatly and dreams because of him. Our Lord did not, during his lifetime, then use the title Son of God for a very, very serious reason that he had years of teaching to make. And what he was doing during those years of teaching, he was proving the, the answer to that question, who are you? And so his words and his actions answered the question. He, he wouldn't stand up and say, I am the Son of God from day one. He would rather spend the years of teaching proving that I am the Son of God, and I have the powers of God, and yes, I forgive sins. And as they say, even my own Pharisees and Sadducees and my own people say, only God can forgive sins, and yes, I have that power to do that. So he answered that question in many different ways, <clears throat> so that... Uh, even the Pharisees and Sadducees at the end said he claimed to be the Son of God. But he did that more by action and proof and power than he did by claiming the title. And that was much more significant. I mean, anybody could stand up and say that, but only he could actually be it and do it, right? So his, his testimony was much more uh, powerful, and it was unanswerable at that point. 
They had no other way to explain it. Remember, they were reaching so low, they had to explain what he was doing. Uh, the acts of power, uh, miracles, were the work of the devil, they finally had to say. And finally, even they had to give that up. Even they couldn't, they couldn't even uphold that idea. There was no alternative but to say, this is God, the work of God. And our Lord said, uh, if it is by the, the power of God that I do these things, then doubtless the kingdom of heaven has come upon you. So this is the day of reckoning for you. you know? Serious words, right? Mm -hmm. They took it seriously. Um, so in the life of Christ, not calling himself um, the, the Son of God was a very powerful testimony. <laughs> First of all, it prevented him from being accused of blasphemy uh, the first time he opened his mouth. No. Uh, it, it gave him the time to work and to prove, to demonstrate his identity as the Son of God. So that even his enemies had to say, well, look, I mean, there's no doubt about it. He's claiming to be the Son of God. Not that he had said it, but he, he they couldn't avoid it. Um, it was by their own testimony. And even Pilate, they say you're a king. Thou sayest it, I am a king. But my kingdom is not of this world. Again, it's all clear testimony. But in the life of the church, our Lord's expression, the Son of Man, became very, very important because there were those who would deny that he was truly God and he had already proven that. But there are those who would then come and say, but he wasn't truly man. And those heretics had to be dealt with too. And to establish the fact that, yes, God really became man, and Jesus is God and man, truly, one of the things that the church could point to is, in the sacred scriptures, our Lord re repeatedly referring himself, referring to himself as the Son of Man over and over again. A very powerful testimony uh, for which they really had no answer. <clears throat> so both of these... Um, our Lord being the Son of Man and our Lord being the Son of God were manifested very clearly in the Scriptures, but in, in different ways. And they were each manifested in a way that was very proper to itself. The fact that He was the Son of Man was manifested in one way, in a very, very important way. The fact that He is truly the Son of God was manifested in another way, in another very, very powerful way. <laughs> I hope that is somewhat clear. Yeah. So, so it was accurate though for for our Lord to to refer to Himself as the Son of Man because He was um, essentially referring to the fact that He took His human nature from the Blessed uh, Mother. Absolutely. That actually the fact is that God became man, not just the appearance of a man. Uh, there were a lot of those who believed that God had walked among us, but in appearance only. That it was God, but he didn't really become man. They found it almost impossible to believe. Uh, even as the Islamics today would never, ever allow that. If you said that, they would cut your head off. Right? Uh, <coughs> the fact is, though, that Jesus Christ repeatedly uh, called himself the Son of Man to emphasize the fact that those who believed him to be God because of his words and his actions 
would know that God actually literally took human nature and became a man in time in this world and died on the cross for us. Some would, some, look, so many people believe in God. Uh, I mean, everybody our Lord was talking to, everybody, including the Romans, believed in God, right? They all believed in God. But what they would have to be convinced of was that God became man. That was what they had to be convinced of, really. And when our Lord referred to himself repeatedly by the title Son of, Son of Man, and those who came to understand that he really is the divine person of God, they, they, they realized he really, really made it very clear that the unthinkable was true. The inconceivable is true, that God became man. And he really is the Son of Man. Okay, that's great. Thank you, Father. Um, another question. Viewer says, Hello, Father. I'd like to know if there is an official position taken by the church for belief in mythological creatures such as different types of fairies. So would it be wrong to believe in them considering many people have throughout the years believed in them? And even Pope Pius XII himself commented on fairies as being, quote, the enemy of good children. Well, uh... It is a fact, as we found out, right, that Pope Pius XII did uh, comment on fairies as the enemies of good children. But he was not Pope Pius XII when he said that. He was a 17-year-old boy, okay, who uh, was given an assignment with his class to write about their enemies. Kind of an interesting uh, assignment, a professor saying, write an essay on your enemies. <clears throat> and, and the young uh, Eugenio Pacelli wrote about the uh, nightmares he had as a young child. And he said, as a young child, he had, was plagued with nightmares of these fairies who would appear and then morph into these horrible, horrible monsters before his eyes. And they frightened him. They terrified. They terrorized him. And he had come to the conclusion at some point, as he wrote in, in this essay at the age of 17, that they were sort of figures of things to come in his life and or things of the future. And I, looking back from this vantage point, I could see that the fairies maybe well have been some kind of uh, forecast of the f terrible figures of the future that were plaguing, plaguing the, uh, the young lad who became Pius XII. I don't know, right? I mean, what lay ahead for him? Uh, the Nazism, Nazism, <laughs> Hitler, uh, the Bolshevism of, of Stalin and Lenin, right? <clears throat> and these, these monsters who portrayed themselves as benign, but they were actually monsters, right? And even going into the present day, um, yeah, we would say the fairies are still <clears throat> monsters who are threatening and... Um, <clears throat> The, the good little children, enemies of good little children, right? And uh, we might even, you know, if, if you, you, well, anyway, perhaps I better leave that alone right now. <laughs> but anyway, um, <clears throat> the uh, question, though, of whether we can believe in mythological figures, well, if you look in the Bible, you know, they talk about the dragon, or they, you know, in the book of the Apocalypse and so on, the book of the Apocalypse gives us imagery the dragon, the beast, and so on and so forth. And so these things are real, 
but they are represented by these these images of uh, you know dragons and beasts and so on and so forth and um, but they really are what we try to visualize you visualize the dragon you think of what the dragon represents and you realize there is a reality there behind this far beyond what we actually can portray the same with the beast there's a reality here so these are not mythological figures they're actually divinely revealed as being real figures and the closest we can come to representing them in speech is by these concepts that we we have devised of dragons and beasts you know and they really are these things but in a way far beyond what we can even conceive of <clears throat> and leviathan and so on and so forth and we you know, they talk about the unicorn and so on you know there are those who speculate well maybe the unicorn was the, the <clears throat> actually the reports that they were hearing in the middle east of of uh, uh, rhinoceroses and so on. You know, they heard about these things, they wrote about these things. And of course, seafarers would have giant squid and things they would have seen that they would have written about. So again, I mean, these could have well been regarded as mythological beasts by our people reading them today, but they were real things that were seen by these people then. And they were trying to describe what they saw according to you know, the language that they, that they had at their disposal. Mm -hmm. um, are, there, are there fairies? Well, there are not fairies like Tinkerbell, or Tinkerbell, sorry. They're not fairies like Tinkerbell. Uh, there's no uh, Wicked Witch of the West or uh, Good Witch of the East, which is kind of a strange, interesting, uh, you know, the West and the East. Even there, they're trying to make some kind of statement, I guess. But uh, in any case... None of those, those are all fantasy you know, that, we, that we make up for ourselves. But um, there are genuine beasts out there, and there are genuine dragons out there, and they are demonic. They are all demonic. Um, we know the angels that were faithful to God in heaven remain angels, and they are always angels, right? We know that the fallen angels can adopt all kinds of different forms, right? They can uh, disguise themselves. They can even disguise themselves as angels of light and deceive people, right? Um, even Satan can disguise, divide, uh, disguise himself as an angel of light to deceive even the elect. So they're masters of disguise and deception. So to the extent that one realizes that, one realizes, well, yeah, there can be such figures as fairies, trolls, goblins, and all that, but they're all demonic. And they all, rep they all represent something demonic. Okay. All right, very good. Uh, Father, maybe we could end there. Um, is there uh, anything positive we could end on tonight, perhaps? Well, of course, we have Thanksgiving. Coming up just in a couple of days, right? How positive can you get? Thanksgiving, right? So how often, how often does St. Paul in particular stress the need to be thankful? Over and over again, he says. Well, he's telling us about all the other things we are to do. Charity itself. He's talking about charity covers a multitude of sins and so on and so forth. But he says, and charity fulfills all the law and all the prophets. Even in talking about that, St. Paul constantly returns to the theme of 
being grateful, being thankful to God. And that is where we have to start, Tom. We have to go back to that. Um, it's a secular holiday, I know. But for us, every single day of our lives as Catholics, we have the true Mass. And the true Mass it centers around the Holy Eucharist, the Holy giving of thanks to God for the blessings we've received, but in particular, the one blessing that is the key to all others, and that is the blessing of the presence of Christ, his body and his blood and his soul, and his divine person in the Blessed Sacrament. And the sacrifice that he made for us is placed there on the altar for us. That is the supreme purpose, the supreme uh, grounds or foundation of all of our thanksgiving. And um, we, as Catholics, we have to realize this is a daily thing for us. <clears throat> Giving thanks is not just one day a year, the fourth Sunday in November each year, when we think, oh, let's give thanks. Oh, yeah, that's right. Let's remember to give thanks. Even if some people remember that on Thanksgiving, because as far as they're concerned, Thanksgiving is what's going to be on the table and what's going to be on the TV, <clears throat> right? And that's Thanksgiving as far as they're concerned. But for us Catholics, it's a way of life. It is a way of life. Thanksgiving means something different to us. And what it means is a profound act of humility, gratitude to Almighty God for all the blessings He's granted us. And I say humility because we recognize we haven't really earned these things. Uh, we plant the seed, it grows into food. But we didn't create the seeds. Uh, and we didn't make them grow. Um, we just apply a little bit of our own labor, and voila, we provide a Thanksgiving table, you know. And, uh, and there it is. After all this, we think all that we are giving to God, what is that? What are we giving to God? A lot of sins, right? But there are those, maybe the, like the ten just men of, that would, who would have saved Sodom and Gomorrah, there are those who are still really living, not only giving thanks to God, but living lives of thanksgiving to God. Well, this is the kind of person you and I have to be, Tom. We have to be those people. We have to be thankful people. Be very, very intensely grateful to our Lord for being our Lord, making himself known to us as our Lord, uh, our creator, our redeemer, our savior, faithful, or faithful. When he says those words, come ye blessed of my father and take possession of the kingdom. <clears throat> we need to thank you for that. So I do encourage that. Now today also just happens to be a feast day of our blessed lady. The feast day of the presentation of our lady in the temple. When as a young girl, uh, Anna and Joachim, her parents, took her to the temple and actually placed her there at the service in kind of the temple school, but where she would learn to do things at the service of God uh, in the temple. And that is how Our Lady grew up. That's where she was educated. And um, we think, what a moment that was when he who was called by God to become his own mother, that she was going to be visited by the angel Gabriel, right? And invited to become the mother of, of, of the Savior, the promised one, the Messiah, right? The Christ, that she was herself presented in the temple. That was this very significant moment in time, right? 
And uh, so the church commemorates that event with this feast day of Our Lady's presentation in the temple. As though it was a step, a very significant step forward to what is to come, to what is to come uh, next. Right? We, we commemorate on December, on December 8th, her own Immaculate Conception, of course, years before, but also in, in March, the Annunciation of the angel Gabriel coming to her. So this feast fits very nicely into this entire celebration. Talk about giving thanks. Um, it fits very nicely into this whole scheme of thanksgiving, that we thank God for giving us a Savior. We thank God for giving us a woman, Mary, who would herself give us a Savior by saying, be it done unto me according to thy word. And so bringing together this particular feast day and the secular holiday of Thanksgiving seems extremely appropriate, right? We would find every motive to be thankful to God. Uh, thankful for our Lord and thankful for Our Lady's fiat. Let it be done unto me according to thy word. Well, Father, I am uh, thankful for you being here tonight, so I appreciate that. Oh, well, God bless you. At least there's one person. <laughs> I appreciate that. There are many more, Father. But God bless you, and thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. <clears throat> Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. And we Thank wish you, you all, on behalf of What Catholics Believe, yeah. a blessed feast day. Absolutely. You join in that. God bless you. A blessed Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving.